All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We are in our sermon series going through the book of Luke. If you remember last week, uh, we knocked out chapter 3 uh, with John the Baptist. And the main point, John the Baptist's message was repentance, that you turn from sin to the mercy of God. And then we jump into Luke chapter 4, almost. In between the baptism of Jesus and Luke's message, or in John the Baptist's message of repentance, you see this thing called a genealogy. And we're going to go through what, why in the world is a genealogy there right before you get to Luke chapter 4, which is the temptation of Jesus. And now, I want to do a couple of things this morning. Here's the goal. The goal is, I want us to see our victory in the victory of Christ. If you don't have victory in Christ, you will not have victory at all. And so, first and foremost, this passage is about how Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, something that you and I cannot and have not done, so that He could be our victory. And so, I want us to find our victory in Christ, and then, because we have victory, I want us to fight temptation the way Jesus fights temptation. But, primarily, this is not a passage about how you and I can fight sin. Primarily, this is a passage about how Jesus comes to conquer sin and Satan. All right, so I want us to see this with clear eyes. And then uh, I want us to realize um, that we are in a battle. One of the most dangerous places to be is in a fight, not knowing you're in a fight. Right? So on December 7th, 1941, uh, you have Pearl Harbor. And the United States on that day was a neutral country in World War II. And Japan comes and bombs Pearl Harbor. They hit all eight U.S. battleships, sinking four and damaging the four others. They destroyed or damaged more than 300 aircraft and killed some 2,000 sailors. It was a devastating day. It caught the United States off guard because they weren't in the war, yet they were neutral. It's a dangerous place to think you're in a neutral territory when there is an enemy heading your direction. And... If you belong to Christ, you have an enemy. And so we're going to talk and see how Jesus is our victory over the enemy and then how we do battle. All right, so let's dig in. We're going to pray and then cover Luke chapter 4. Father, I pray that you open up our eyes, help us see your word. I pray that your spirit moves and fills us. I pray that we're convicted of sin and of what we need to do moving forward. I pray that we rest in what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so Cortez read Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, that's a very, very big difference between you, me, and Christ. Jesus, without sin, you and I have sinned. And we come to this passage in Luke chapter 4, right after Luke does the genealogy. Now, it seems out of place, right? So-and-so had this kid, and then this guy had this kid, and this guy had this kid, and this was his father, and this was his son. And it goes all through the list and traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, most of the times you would do that with the birth of Christ. Why would you put that here in between John the Baptist and his ministry and baptizing Jesus and right before temptation and wilderness? Why in the world did Luke put this genealogy here? 
The reason why is he wants us to think about Adam in the garden when he was tempted. What happens in the garden? So we need to go back, visit the garden. It's in Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know the Bible, that's the first book of the Bible. And in the first two chapters, God creates everything and it is awesome. There is no pollution. There is no crime. It is beautiful. It is perfect. It's called the Garden of Eden. It is perfection. And in it, you have Adam and Eve. And, and God creates Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam, Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Just of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Everything else you can have. Enjoy. Don't touch this tree. Don't eat it. Sure enough, time passes. Here comes Satan. Comes to Eve and Adam and says, hey, did God really say couldn't eat this? And then he tells Adam and Eve, no, God's withholding back from you. He doesn't want you to be wise like he's wise. And then it says Eve saw and she took the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. And they rebel against God in the garden. And then God comes to them and says, hey, because you've done this, you're out of the garden. They're kicked out of the garden. And what enters the picture? Death. And you can see disaster happens in the relationships between Adam and Eve. Eve blames Adam, and Adam blames God and Eve. You, you see that with sons that Adam and Eve have, there's a murder. I mean, it's it just crazy after sin enters the picture. And so what happens here, we see, oh man, this is in paradise, a position of strength. Satan tempts, sin enters the picture. And then ever since that day, Satan has been undefeated. Because all of us in the room have to say we have sin in our lives. We messed up. We missed the mark. We don't live perfect lives. All of us have fallen. All of us have fallen short. And that's everybody who's ever walked the planet, with one exception. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so you see later on in Genesis 3.15, God says to, to Satan, hey, you're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And he's pointing to a day where finally somebody's going to come and kill the serpent. And it's pointing to Jesus. And so, with that backdrop, Adam and Eve in the garden falling, sin entering the picture, Satan being undefeated when it comes to sin in people's lives, you see Jesus and he goes to the wilderness. And so, uh, let's pick up uh, Luke chapter 4. We'll look at verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. We read this. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when uh, they are ended, he was hungry. I think that's an understatement. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's not eating. And Luke says that when he's finished with those 40 days, he was hungry. If you guys didn't have breakfast today, your stomachs will start growling here in a little bit. Right? You're going to be hungry. And so Jesus is out in this place in the wilderness. That's a dangerous place to be. If you guys ever go camping, you're taking gear with you. Right? Jesus is going out to the wilderness. He's enduring the elements, the heat and the cold, the animals. It's a dangerous spot to be. And for 40 days, he's not eating anything. He is physically weak. I want you to remember, Adam and Eve in the garden, paradise. They could eat anything from any tree except one. They were full position of strength, Jesus in a position of weakness. When he is the weakest, Satan shows up. And he is a deadly foe. And so the stage is set. Will Jesus fall 
like Adam and Eve, have fallen? Or is there a new guy on the scene that brings new hope? Let's dig in and see. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Don't you love how Satan shows up? Sounds similar, doesn't it? Did God really say, don't touch this tree, don't eat of its fruit? If you're really the son of God. Satan always loves to plant doubt. He does the same things today. Has God really spoken? Do you really need to follow Jesus? You could use something uh, like God's design for sex and marriage and how uh, sex should be um, held off until marriage. And, and what, what people will say, uh, that's an old-fashioned rule by God. That's not really how God's wired us. God's keeping something from me. And Satan comes and he'll plant seeds of doubt. Or uh, you'll, you'll buy into the light. God wants you to be happy, right? Satan will throw this to you. Um, you you want to be happy, and so you got to meet your desire. Like Satan always is getting you to question what God's design is. And that's exactly what he uses with the Son of God. If you're the Son of God. And, and then I, he points to a need that Jesus really did need. If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. And what Satan is saying is, hey, if you're the son of God, you shouldn't be suffering like this. You should be eating. And, and hey, this rock right here, turn it into bread and you can eat it. You'll be fine. And yet listen to Jesus's response. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You see, this is a temptation of your greatest need. And this changes all throughout your life. You think you really need something. But your greatest need is God. And here he's like, yes, bread is necessary for survival, but it's not my greatest need. Doing what my Father has called me to do is my greatest need. And if He wants me to die in the desert, I'm going to follow the Father's will. This is very important for us to understand. This is the anthem Jesus lives by. As a matter of fact, you see this in the garden. and the Mount of Olives when He's praying. He's praying before Jesus is crucified, and he says, Father, if this cup can pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is the anthem of Jesus Christ. Is that the anthem of your life? Because when you haven't eaten for 40 days, it's really tempting to turn in a rock to a donut and eat it. Or if you're getting ready to be nailed to a cross and you're going to observe the wrath of the Father, you really want that cup to pass, and yet Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, I want to follow your will. Is that your anthem? That's Jesus' anthem, and you see that in the first temptation. But Satan's not finished. He moves on. All right, so if he's not going to trip up on the greatest desire, let's see if he'll trip up on this. Verse 5, And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, said to him, to you, I will give you all authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You see, Satan does have some authority. He's called the prince and the power of this world. You see him operating in the destruction of systems and cultures. You see him operating in massacres. Nazi Germany is an easy one. Abortion is an easy one. Like you see the effects of Satan in the power that he yields. 
This isn't a made-up foe. A lot of times people think of, oh yeah, that cartoon with the horns and he's sitting on your shoulder. No, Satan is a massive enemy and he trumps all of us in the room. And he said, hey, I'll give this to you, Jesus. Well, Jesus is going to have the kingdoms and every knee will bow before Jesus, but it doesn't come through compromises. It comes through a cross. And what Satan is saying is, hey, you can have everything that you think you want and you don't even have to go through suffering. You can have it. I'll give it to you. Just worship me. And Jesus responds. Jesus answered him. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, for Jesus, there is no crown apart from the cross. There is no crown with compromise. And so he goes to the cross, and now he's raised to the Father's right hand, and every kingdom will bow to him through a cross. And then you get to the last temptation. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him up on the pinnacle temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, again casting doubt, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And now I think this is interesting. Satan adapts his strategy. He starts quoting scripture to Jesus. It says, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you see how crafty Satan is? Man, Jesus keeps on quoting scripture to me. Uh, here, I'll get him to trip up here. Hey, this is what God wants you to do. A lot of people do this. Twist the Bible to say what they want to say. A lot of people do this. Um, I was talking to Mr. Fight this week, talking about um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that's dealing with contentment. You can be content no matter what your life circumstances are. And, and a lot of times what we'll, we'll see is some athlete will pray, hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even win a championship. Not anything what the verse is talking about. Right? We'll rip things out of context and say, hey, this is what God said. That's what Satan does here. And then listen to Jesus. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I wonder what the test was. Do you guys wonder what the test is here? Right? He takes him up to a pinnacle and says, throw him down, prove you're the Messiah, prove you're the Son of God. Right? So I, I had to look this up. What, what's he talking about? Well, Jesus quotes a passage back from Deuteronomy 6.16. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But the verse keeps going. He says, as you tested him at Massa, M-A-S-S-A-H. Have any of you guys heard of Massa? Anybody? I hadn't. Where's Massa? What is that city? Well, I had to go back, dig a little further. Massa is a city you see in Exodus. The people of God are in the wilderness. After they escape from bondage in uh, Egypt, they're in the wilderness. They're camped in a place with no water. The people complained and asked Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt in the first place? We could have died there. They had graves. Instead, you bring us out here, we're going to die of thirst. And then God provides water for the people from a rock. And Moses speaks in Exodus 17, 7, says, Moses called the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is God here or not? If he was, we'd have water. Right? And they're putting God to the test. You better prove it. Because it's not going my way. You better show up. And that's what Satan is doing to Jesus. Hey, are you really the Messiah? Prove it. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not putting him to the test. I believe. And you'll be tempted to do the same thing. Right? If God really loves me, he's going to heal my mom of this disease. If God really loves me, he's going to get the job that I needed. Right? And it's this temptation to say, hey, God, if you're really there, you've got to do something. It's not how it works. We don't put God to the test. 
We see God in creation. We see him through the word. We see him through the work of Christ. And we walk by faith. So Jesus answered and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then it's finished. Verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, the reason this is important. If Jesus had missed it here, he could not be our Savior. Because he'd have sin to pay for himself. And yet you see here and then all throughout his life, Jesus never messes up. He never misses the mark. He follows the will of the Father to perfection. So, when he goes to the cross, when you see that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he says, uh, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Speaking of Jesus, he, he took on our sin. That's what it means to be made sin for us. He, he takes it to the cross and pays for our sin and says we can become the righteousness of God. We get the righteousness of Christ. What he does in the wilderness, we get. His perfect life, we get. Because he pays for our sin on the cross because he didn't have any sin to pay for himself. That's victory. You want to have victory? You want to be okay before God? You want to be counted as righteous forever in a place the Bible calls heaven and a new earth? It comes not because you're good. It comes because Jesus is perfect. And we see it in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. His victory has to become your victory if you are going to be victorious. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's what grace is all about. So, here's a couple questions. Now, these guys are basketball players. And they have one thing in common. They all have at least one NBA championship. Does anybody know what the NBA trophy is called? That's impressive. The O'Brien Trophy. Listen to these guys. Tell me if you've heard of them. David Vaughn. Rusty LaRue. Joe Klein. Keith Booth, Jack Haley, Corey Williams, Daryl Walker, Trent Tucker, Ed Neely, JoJo English, Joe Courtney, Ricky Banton, Rory Sparrow, Mark Randall, Chuck Nevitt, Bobby Hansen, Dickie Simpkins, Jason Caffey, Randy Brown, Scott Williams, or Stacy King. I've heard of Stacy King. That's just because this was my age range. These guys all have NBA championships because they played with Michael Jordan. They were on the team with Jordan because Jordan, and thank goodness he came back from baseball or a lot of these guys wouldn't have a ring, right? They won championships because they were on the right team with the right player. The only way you and I win a championship, get the crown of eternal life, is because of Jesus. Because we were on the right team with the right player. That's the only way. That's what this passage is all about in Luke chapter 4. Satan comes and he's undefeated. He's like, yeah, I got him to trip up, got her to trip up. This isn't a hard thing. Billions and billions of people. And then he comes to Jesus. He's like, uh-oh, that's not working. Uh, try this. Oh, that's not working. Try this. That's not working. Right? He's starting to panic because he's not getting Jesus to trip up. And Jesus just keeps moving. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's chilling out in a desert. He's like, no, not a problem for me. That's awesome. That's victory. That can be our victory. So that's the main point of this passage. I want you guys to see that. So if you've never put your faith in Christ to save you from your sin, today's a good day to do that. Because he was tempted, like you and I are tempted, but he doesn't give in. He follows the Father. And then he lays his life down for us so that we can get that righteousness.
and he can pay for your sin. I'm begging you, trust in him for salvation. But there are some applications here. There are some applications for how to fight. And I think it's, it's very important. Now listen, all three of these things could be a sermon. And so um, with the time allotted, we're going to dig in. Um, I, I want you guys to take some notes on this. There's a lot of passages here. Uh, some, some stuff that will help you fight. All right? So number one, you fight temptation the way Jesus fought temptation. Number one, be filled with the Spirit. You see this in Luke 4.1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness. And then you see the next verse after 13, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So in the 40 days while he didn't have food, he had the Holy Spirit. And that's very, very important. And so the question is, how can we be full of the Spirit? Right? It's not like you can go to Shell or Speedway and fill up on the Holy Spirit. Right? So, so how does this work? Like, like the Holy Spirit does this. God does this in a person's life. So, so how can I fill myself up with the Holy Spirit? You can't. It's something God does. But this is how it works. And so I, I want us to listen. Uh, we'll go through this. Number one, um, Jesus sends another helper just like he was a helper to the disciples. So Jesus is talking to his boys. And this is what he says. I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this is a beautiful promise. Think about what happens when you realize the Spirit of God indwells you. So I don't know about you, but there's some movies I watch with my friends that are funny, but when I watch with my mom and dad, aren't so funny. Right? And as a matter of fact, some of them are awkward, like, oh my gosh, I don't remember this scene in here. This is, I, I don't. Now think, if Jesus is sitting next to you, and you're watching this crap on TV, and you're like, oh, you're right. All right. I'll change the channel, or I'll turn it off, or I'll do something else. Think about if Jesus is by you 24-7, how that changes your life. You're probably not going to do some things, and you probably are going to do some things. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, I am with you 24-7. I'm sending another helper. My spirit's going to be with you. And if you know Christ, you have that helper. And he is with you 24-7. And that's the promise you get in Romans 8-9. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. This is very cut and dry. If you put your faith in Christ, and you trust him for salvation, you have this helper called the Holy Spirit. So check this out. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he clarifies, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you belong to Christ, you have the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then we move to Ephesians 5.18. This is what Coach Pope and I were talking about. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I, I think it's interesting. Um, the consumption of alcohol and label of happy hour, like anything alcohol promises to give will actually be met and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The joy people try to find in drinking will only be found in the Spirit. And it says, be filled with the Spirit. And so there's some things that we have to do in order to be filled with the Spirit. So, so what are they? In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. And then it says, abstain from every form of evil. So when you give in to sin, what happens is you're quenching the Spirit. Like, ah, 
I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this. What you're doing is you're cutting off the whole, like, I don't want to listen. I don't want to, gosh, I don't want to hear that conviction. I don't want to hear that truth. I'm not going to do it. You're quenching the Spirit. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and living in sin, giving in to every desire. Right? So don't quench the Spirit. Abstain from evil. Be filled with the Spirit. And then we keep going. And Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's in the context of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And the new self's created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So you quench the Holy Spirit by doing whatever is evil, and then you grieve the Holy Spirit by anything that's unrighteous. Right? Same truth. When you're walking in sin, you're killing the Spirit of God in your life. You're not being filled. You're quenching, you're grieving, you're pushing it down, you're trying to repress it. And then we see, are you walking by the Spirit or flesh? So, so what is the Spirit and what is the flesh? If you have your Bibles, Galatians 5. Now listen, I want you to write it down. If you have your phones, put this down. Because this is the clearest gauge, I think. Hey, if you want to know if you're walking by the Spirit, here's the fruit of the Spirit. This is what it looks like to be walking by the Spirit. If you're walking in your flesh, these are the characteristics of walking in the flesh. And so it's Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Now listen, I know this is a lot to read. I want you to hear it. And I want you to tell me which camp you're in. Not tell me, but know in your heart which camp you're in. Right? If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God produces fruit in your life. This is what it should look like. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Right? You want to be filled with the Spirit? Walk by the Spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. You can't do both. You cannot do both. It says to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You have a flesh against, like, ah, I want to do what's right. And the flesh is warring against the Spirit in your life. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the flesh. That's what's produced by the flesh. So if that characterizes your life, you do not know Christ. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things, there's no law. And to those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, real quick, I want us to be careful here. Nobody is going to be perfect this side of heaven. You're not going to make it there. However, you should be growing in the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. You should be growing in your faithfulness. You should be growing in your kindness. You should be growing in your patience. And here's, here's the awesome part. If you blew it with patience yesterday, you'll have another opportunity today or tomorrow or the next day. Right? I learned patience in marriage, and then I had kids, and I figured out I had a lot more patience to learn. Right? And that's how life happens. But we need to be growing in this. Right? Growing in the fruit. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Walk by the Spirit. You live by the Spirit. And then just a couple more things. Um, have faith. Believe. Know that the Spirit of God lives in you, that He empowers you, and then walk. And so in Acts 6, 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Spirit. And then Barnabas in Acts eleven twenty four. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's not by accident. You want to be filled with the Spirit? 
be full of faith. I believe God. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe He gave me His Spirit. I believe He's in me, and I believe He's going to fill me. And then in Romans 5.13, May the God of hope, Paul's prayer for the church at Rome, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that in believing, you might have the power of the Holy Spirit, so you will abound in hope. That's crucial. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is in you and empowering you? And then uh, one last thing with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven 13, we'll get there in a couple weeks. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask. I ask. Uh, so before um, I have an opportunity to, to speak on Sundays, I pray God fill me with your Spirit. Help me think clearly. Help me communicate clearly the things of the Word. And I believe He does. I ask God to move, and I believe His Spirit's moving. I believe He's filling believers. That's the only way you're going to defeat temptation, is if you're full of the Spirit. So, are you full of the Spirit? Then, number two, be in the Word. Luke 4, 4. And, and you guys see this. Luke 4, 4, 4, 8, and 4, 12 Jesus' response. And every time he responds, he quotes the Old Testament. It, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. So a couple of things. Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you do not know this book, you do not know the Word of God, how can it lead you? How can it guide you? How can it be a light to your path? You have to be a people of the book. You've got to know what God has said. And then in James, it's a reminder not just know what it said, but actually do it. James 1, 22 and 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You want to know the things of God? You have a book. You've got to know this Bible. So here's my question. Jesus went 40 days without food, and we know food's vital, right? You want to know what he didn't go without? The Word of God. Because he's quoting it, he's quoting it, he's quoting it. Here's my question. If you spend more time with food than you do the Word of God, what's more vital to your life? If you spend more time, TV, video games, social media, than the Word of God, what's more vital to your life? You have to be in the Word. Be full of the Holy Spirit, be in the Word, and then lastly, be on watch. I think it's interesting, verse 13 closes, um, he leaves Jesus, but he doesn't leave him for good. The devil had ended every temptation, we just got three of them. When he ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You better be on watch, or as uh, 1 Peter 5.8 puts it, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He doesn't play. He comes to you at your weakest moment. He knew exactly where Jesus was 40 days into his fast. He's weak. I'm going to get him. I've been waiting for this opportunity. Uh, if you guys remember back to the Super Bowl, Cardinal Steelers, our neighborhood was scoped out by burglars. And they knew that a Super Bowl gives you about a three-hour window to take your time, get what you want. They saw my house, there's no alarm system, there's no dog, uh, there were no lights on, and both our vehicles were gone, nobody was home, and they knew it. They saw another neighbor, same thing, no alarm, no cars, no dog, and they knew it. They kicked our door in, they kicked their door in. Got as much as they want, and they left. Why? Because it was an opportune time. Now, the enemy works the same way. Make no mistake, when you go home and you try to dig into the Word, you're going to get a phone call. 
You're going to be tempted to go do something else. You'll have another invitation for something. When you and your wife are in a fight, be expected that somebody else is coming to the door. Somebody else is calling. There will be somebody better on the other side. Satan knows you when you're weakest, and he's looking for an opportune time. That's why it's so important to be filled with the Spirit, be in the Word, and be on watch. When you're on watch, you're looking at everything. So I learned something with, with Coach Pope. There was a, a girl fight up at Holmes High School. And girl fights are the worst because you got a lot of hair. And, you're, and listen, I'm sensitive when it comes to hair. I know what it's like to lose some. And so I'm trying to make sure the girls don't lose all this hair. And so these girls had a nice grip, and we couldn't get them separated. We had an assistant principal do a countdown. That didn't work. Girls were going to let go on, on three. One, two, three. Ah, it didn't work. Coach Pope comes to the rescue, right? And, and Coach Pope was pulling one girl. But when he does, he swim moves one girl to get an arm. And as he swims, his elbow catches me in the eye. It's the only time I've ever been hit in a fight. Right? Catches me up by the eye, and I'm looking. I'm like, which girl just hit me? And, so, and Coach Pope's like, oh, my bad. My bad. You learn. You have to be on. you got to be able to see everything coming. And sometimes Satan will get you so focused on something, you're missing out on the things of God. Sometimes Satan will come to you at your weakest. Sometimes he'll come when something just awesome happened. He'll say, hey, you don't need God. Look at how good you're doing. But he's looking for an opportune time. And, and we'll, we'll, close, we'll close with this. Uh, I was reading about a guy, um, Jeremy Sutcliffe was his name. He was a, a guy out in Texas. They're working in a garden, he and his wife, and there was a rattlesnake, a four-foot rattlesnake. Now, listen, I don't do snakes. So there's this four-foot rattlesnake in his garden, and so he gets the shovel, bam, kills the snake, cuts his head off. Right? And so uh, he waits about 10 minutes, and then he goes and, and gets the body and throws it out, and then goes to grab the head, and as he reaches down to grab the head, strikes him and puts venom all in him. And he starts having seizures on his way to the hospital. They had to get a helicopter, get him to another hospital where they had more anti-venom, and he survived, but barely. And you see, a dead snake is still dangerous. And a lot of us live life like we can live however we want to. Right? We understand that Satan has been defeated by Christ, but a defeated snake is still dangerous. You can't live life however you want to. You need to be filled with the Spirit, you need to be in the Word, and you need to be on watch because you're in a battle. And you have an enemy that's coming to you at an opportune time. Our victory is in Christ, it's sure, but it's still dangerous and it's still a battle. So you better be fighting. And thanks be to God, we're filled with His Spirit, we know His Word, we're on watch, we can win the battle. And we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Lord, I thank you that he goes to the wilderness and in his weakness stays the course. And he stays the course all the way to the cross. And he endures the wrath that's poured out on sin so that we might experience victory over temptation, over sin, and over death. So, Father, I pray that we run to him today, and I pray that we do battle against the enemy, that we rely on your spirit, that we seek you out in your word, and that we watch out for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.